0: Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at VigorBranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, today I am joined by Sam Slaughter. Uh, Sam actually works for us here at Vigor from time to time, uh, making words, weaving stories, and uh, you know, making us jealous that we don't get to uh, indulge in as much movies as he does. That'll make sense in a minute. Um, Sam, why don't you say hello, give a little bit of backstory on um, who you are and how you got into the beverage game.
1: Sure. Hello. Uh, my name is Sam Slaughter. I'm an author. I'm based here in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, my first cocktail book came out in 2019. It's called are you afraid of the dark rum and other cocktails for nineties kids? And over the past, I would say five to seven years. I don't know. I'm an English major. Numbers have never been my game, but I've been a food writer, a drink writer. I've been able to kind of travel around the world and stuff my face with really anything that's put in front of me. And you can take that as you see fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I encourage everyone to take that in the most horrible of ways. So um, one, I am supremely jealous of your backdrop versus mine. Uh, So for those that aren't looking at the video, my backdrop is our um, conference room, which is a nice conference room. I do like it a lot. A lot of nice natural light. Thank you. Yes. Cheers. Um, But Sam is sitting in front of a wall of bottles of alcohol and... um, if there was ever a moment where I thought maybe I might be a drunk now would be that moment. Cause I, I stare and salivate. Uh, but why don't you give, uh, the listeners, maybe viewers a little bit of a uh, reason why you are immersed in booze.
1: Sure. Uh, in my role as a food and spirits writer, part of that is first being able to understand the, the things that I'm eating and drinking, but also doing reviews from time to time. And so, over the years, I've kind of accrued a collection of things. And it is helpful for making cocktails to be able to kind of go and just if I am struck with a fancy of I think this might work, I can at whatever time of day, call it research and make a cocktail or so. My friends have nicknamed it the booze bunker. It's the wall behind me, as you see is all all alcohol. And it's all except for Literally the shelf that you can't see because it's a mess, but it's all by spirit type. And then the other wall is the extra overload. I don't know. There's two more shelves and then a wine rack, which at the beginning of the pandemic was full. And now there are one, two, three, there are six shelves and I would say two and a half are full. And those are the wine bottles that I've decided to keep for special occasions and not just four o'clock on a Tuesday when it's nice out. And in South Carolina, nice outside at four o'clock is like eight months of the year, which is why most of those are gone.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you did a lot of research while in, in pandemic. I era. did.
1: I did a lot. Um, I had a full <laughs> of information. Now you just, you know, a lot. I stared at a lot of bottles and I read the labels a lot. Um, Ooh. I also, I made sure how they looked out in the sunlight. I sit on my porch and I put the bottle there with my my ice and, you know, maybe some mixers looks like I'm trying to start some sort of walk up bar on my very busy street. I get a lot of weird looks. There is a stoplight, a few houses down. So cars definitely stop in front of my house. And then they see this guy just shaking and pouring by himself with like in sync blasting. So of course, naturally it's, it's stoplight entertainment, I guess. I would like to think that I'm giving something to society in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're like the next level of the uh, sign twirlers, you know? It's, um, <laughs> but you're not trying to get anyone to buy anything, you know? You're just uh, making everyone very thirsty.
1: Yeah, I think if I got anyone to try and buy anything, they'd get arrested and I would get arrested for a slew of, I don't know, felonies or misdemeanors at least.
0: Yeah, you know, but South Carolina is pretty uh, open when it comes to a lot of law. So, I mean, maybe it would just be a slap on the wrist. I don't know. <laughs> not something I want to find out. So the research uh, obviously is a part of uh, what you've been doing for uh, a while now, Uh, and it led to this book, Are You Afraid of the Dark Rum and Other Cocktails for 90s Kids, Uh, which is a fantastic uh, name and title because one, I love rum a lot. Uh, I think I may have been a pirate in a former life. Uh, And two, I used to love Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, and when I first read that, I actually confused it with the scary stories to tell in the dark, which mm-hmm. was also a fantastic um 90s kids or 80s kids book. But uh tell me about the the name, why is it called that? Uh what was the inspiration and how did you even begin to embark on that journey?
1: Sure. I the book is the book is a series of puns and dad jokes related to 90s pop culture. So my obviously or not maybe not obviously, I grew up in the 90s. And so my my childhood was all of the things that are are referenced in the book whether it's the TV the movies the music you name it and I wanted to sort of write about that in some way shape or form and so I figured out a way that that would work and that was in the form of cocktails so being a food and drink writer having been a bartender in a you know a past life I, I sort of put those two things together and I just started writing punny names or telling people that I wanted to write a nineties cocktail book and sort of believing it into, uh, existence. Um, I was honestly, I was working on a different cocktail book that my agent and I were pitching and we weren't getting any hits on it. And so there was one night I was listening to nineties music. It was a Friday at like 10 or something. I had been drinking. And my agent had sent me a message Along the lines of something like this publisher is interested in, you know, the voice and your perspective, but not this specific subject. And so my first thought in my brain was, well, why don't I write a 90s cocktail book? And then (laughs) he was like, all right, I'll ask them. And a few days later, they're like, yeah, we want to see the proposal for that. And then I kind of went, whoops. Well, (laughs) guess I got to get working on this. And then it was very lucky. I mean, in the publishing industry, you can go years without an acceptance of anything and this sold fairly quickly to the publisher that ended up that took it uh, Andrews McMeal. and so from that point it was a couple of months of just actual research not just you know me drinking and calling it research but thinking about what makes a cocktail and i uh, making cocktails accessible so i have always being a bartender and being someone who likes to host parties or used to like to host parties. Now it's just like me and my dog. And she's not so much for the drinking. Shocking. Yeah, weird dog. Yeah, she's she doesn't take after her father like that. Um, But I wanted to make cocktails accessible. And so reading a bunch of books on how to sort of make basic drinks, and then from there, staring at my walls and talking to other bartenders, and then somehow 45 cocktails came out of that. Nice. Yeah, I imagine uh, when you said that your
0: dog is like sitting there looking at you, thinking, wanting to say desperately, I would have a drink, you lousy drunk, if there was a single bottle to be drunk from.
1: Yeah. Uh, there are definitely times where the look that she gives me could be I mean, if you pour a little bit in the bowl, I'm not going to tell anyone.
0: Just a nip. Just a.
1: <laughs> in dog years, I'm legal, Dad. That's fine.
0: <laughs> that's right. Uh, but you don't have an I- ID. So sorry, I have you know, to follow the, play by the rules. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so what, in your opinion, what was the best thing about uh, compiling that book's content? And then and then of course, writing the elements that needed to be written? What was your favorite part of that? And what was the
1: worst part? I think my favorite part, honestly, was talking to people about it. And so when I tell when I was telling people that I was writing a pun based 90s influence cocktail book, and would give them some of the titles I was working on. Inevitably, there were always one or two more titles that would come out of that, because someone else would be like, Well, have you thought of this? Or what about this? Or they would riff off of something I had said. And so being able to share that kind of experience with not only friends or family, but just random bartenders. So you know, spending a lot of time in just bars and restaurants. I love being able to sit at the bar, talk to the bartender while they're making a drink, just get to know them, get to know their process as well while I'm getting something that they're creating for me. And so it's, you know, it's not an even exchange in the least because they're giving me booze, but I I love getting to know the people behind the drinks as much as I do, you know, the, the thing that's in front of me. And so having those interactions and having those times to just share in uh, shared nostalgia. And I think being able to do the research on the nostalgia end. So I watched all of, I love the nineties, I think twice through. And not only was it, you know, a nice refresher of the pop culture of the time, but like being able to go back and go, "Oh, Oh, that didn't age well. Or, you know, the, the one that we played, and this is very dark, but, one or two of the episodes I was watching with people and we would drink every time someone has died. So like they, oh. <laughs> but like Brittany Murphy pops up and it's like, Oh, Ooh, Ooh. Or That's a bit of a
0: sad drink, right? You're like, Oh,
1: well, we toasted in their honor, but there was one or two episodes where a bunch of the talking heads in a row, or at least over the course of the episode, all were, were dead now. And so it's like, I, I don't know it it's weird what, and what it's dark weird
0: about that. So, sorry to interrupt, but, um, though I think one of the worst things, it's a good thing that celebrities don't get to hear this moment. Cause I think it would crush their oftentimes fragile, fragile egos where someone pops up from the nineties a talking head or whatever. And you look at your friend or your significant other, you're like, are they dead? And then you have to like, look it up online. Like, Oh no, they're, they're still alive.
1: Yeah. And, um,
0: I think they would cry if they found out people did that.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, I would say so. Uh, especially when you look at the trajectories of some people. And so tangentially from all of the research, I went down a lot of rabbit holes, like a lot of rabbit holes. So fun fact for you, Lou Bega, Mamba number no. five. That oh, yeah, famous well, song. Uh, I don't a- think you need to even say that. Just
0: Mamba number no. five and a- I wish I could play it right now.
1: He's German, first of all. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, but also, he's now a born again Christian. Wow. So it's Mambo number five for Christ?
0: Pretty much. Yeah. Or Ma- Mambo Psalm number five. I don't know. <laughs>
1: it, you know, it, it was things like that where it's, you know, 2 a.m. I'm watching just YouTube video after YouTube video of the other songs that he had just getting deeper and deeper into this hole that I know I'm not going to crawl out of by, you know, three or four in the morning and then waking up going, well, that was a productive use of my time. Maybe. No. Yeah.
0: No. I mean, I imagine it was uh, a really dark time for you (laughs) because Lou Bega is uh, that, that one song. And now I can't stop thinking of all the ways that he re-recorded Mambo number five, but for, you know, a Christian faith driven approach. Uh, you know, like the lyrics could be a little bit of Jesus is all I need. Like he could just do that over and over again. Cause it's a fantastically addictive song.
1: Yeah. And there was also, so I, I got started in writing by writing fiction, you know, creative writing major in, in college, wanting to write that next great American novel, that whole thing that, you know, we believe in as writers when we're 15, 16, whatever. And so after this rabbit hole, I then wrote a short story where, I ran into Lou Bega in a bar and he's just very like down on his luck, but also not. And yeah, a lot of rabbit holes is the, the long and short of that one. <laughs>
0: but rabbit holes are, I think, are where all the creativity is anyway. I mean, rabbit holes in maybe uh, a safe level of intoxication.
1: Yeah. Um, it's definitely scarred my YouTube search history and the algorithm for it, it scarred it for a while, all of the the rabbit holes.
0: So speaking of some of the things that you have done, there is a very lewd photograph on the internet of you. Um, I don't know if you're aware of it. It's very sultry, uh, and suggestive. And it is you, what one would only presume is devoid of clothing covered in cheese balls in a bathtub. And so I don't know if this was leaked from your OnlyFans account or if it was an ex jilted lover who leaked, but
1: do you just love cheese balls? I do to an extent. Um, as far as the OnlyFans, I would like to think since that photo came out a while ago that I was just I was on, I was ahead of OnlyFans as far as <laughs> food based fetish photography. That's a lot of fuh sounds. Um, so that happened because I, I ran my mouth a little bit and the answer was shockingly in favor of it. So again, being a food writer, I had gotten a pitch planters was bringing back their cheese ball. So that iconic, uh, blue canister that's made of like metal and cardboard or whatever, and I got this pitch at like seven o'clock in the morning. I hadn't had my coffee yet. And I knew the guy who was pitching me. And I was like, can I get a couple of samples? Because I grew up on them like my grandmother always had them. I ate them a lot yeah. as a child I think they were just everywhere in general. But he was like, well, how many do you want? The logical question one asks when another person is asking for more than one sample of cheese balls when they cost, you know, a dollar anyway. And the first thing, again, only like maybe half a cup of coffee at this point. The first thing that came to my mind was a bathtub full. And so I said as much.
0: Which is a natural form of measurement in in the Greenville high country area of South Carolina, from what I understand.
1: This was when I was living in New York still. So even more so, it just completely (laughs) makes sense. That's how, I mean, I, I grew up measuring a bathtub full of spaghetti or perhaps um, mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving, you know, it was just, it was either a plate full or a bathtub full. There was no in between. Yeah.
0: I, I heard, I heard a nasty rumor that uh, not a nasty rumor, just a rumor that they were looking at shifting the uh, unit of measurement of time based on Shrek movies. Okay. So, you know, like how many Shrek movies would that take you to write a book, you know, and then you would there, you know, measure it as, as such.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it would, it would have taken me about 65 Shrek movies. Um, Ooh. but with the the bathtub thing I then sent a quick follow-up message because I had already been working on the book and I was like well I've got this book coming out soon I think it would be great you know nice tie to nostalgia um I'll you know if I get a bathtub full I'll sit in them and it you know cross promotional like they can tag it you know I can tag it whatever and he goes yeah I don't think they're gonna do that and I went <laughs> that's understandable and then I did the next logical thing in my brain and went on Twitter tagged planters and was like I'm kind of sad that you don't want to give me a bathtub full of cheese balls so I can take this photo and then I tagged boots and I guess it's a subtweet. Um, uh, oh. like I tagged them under and I was like "Uts, what about you guys and I got a message from them about four or five hours later they were like we think this sounds great what do you need from us and so then I had to uh, figure out How many cheese balls it might take to fill a bathtub, and then I gave them a number. That
0: that Uts that responded, or was it Planets?
1: Uts responded. Nice,
0: way to go, Hanover, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I. They
1: were they were all about it, and so I ended up. They sent me seven of those big barrels of cheese balls. I had moved down to Greenville at this point, but they sent me seven barrels worth. Where. I was used to getting packages at the front office and I get a call from the person at my apartment complex going, why are there two very large boxes from Oots brand sitting in our office right now? You need to come get these. And so why are you jealous? Pretty much. Uh, and so I, I went the next, uh, I think that we needed to do my, my partner at the time, my ex is the photographer of the book. And so she was going to be taking this photo as well we needed to find a bathtub, like a a nice clawfoot bathtub. And so she reached out to someone she knew from where she used to live, who owns this very lovely historic home. I had never met these people, but they said, yeah, sure. Use our bathtub. And I walk into their very lovely house on, you know, Main Street in Davidson, North Carolina, pristine college campus community, all that kind of stuff with barrels of cheese balls going, hello, it's nice to meet you. I'm going to go strip down to a bathing suit and get in your tub now and cover myself in cheese. And so I did um and we we filled it up and I drank a bottle of sparkling wine over the course of about an hour that was the photo shoot and um I I sat in cheese balls and I you know I did some flash dance stuff where I like uh crushed them up and just made it rain, I did the LeBron thing. Um Yeah, douse yourself. Did you do did you do the Kim Kardashian thing where you like
0: threw the cheese balls onto your butt? You know, I would head? have,
1: but they I wanted to contain them, keep them contained in the bathtub. You know, so it was whatever I could do in the bathtub. So I would throw them in the air and try and catch them, except the way that the bathtub was, the wall was you know, it was the lip of the tub and then the wall. So every time I threw one up, I just smacked my head and probably mildly concussed myself trying to catch a cheese ball in my mouth.
0: Yeah. That seems like a very dangerous thing. And it's just, I think it's a Testament to what you're
1: willing to do. I will go to, to the indirect. ends of the earth for cheese balls. I,
0: I think a lot, a lot of people. Would. <laughs> um, all right. So you you mentioned that you spent a lot of time tending the bar as it were. Um, in, in our work at Vigor, you know, we get to see a lot of places in action, a lot of people in action. And I think a lot of folks can live their life not thinking one way or another about a bartender, meaning I go up, I order my beer at the end. But when you experience a great bartender, it is like next level stuff. And so uh, I remember it was about a year ago I was in Charleston. This is before the pandemic just ruined life. Um, and we were doing a marathon day of quote unquote research, which was bouncing from bar to bar, taking notes and taking drinks. Um, and at the one bar, I'm hoping to actually get this place uh on the uh, on the podcast soon, there was a bartender there that was just phenomenal. Uh, he never broke eye contact while he was making the cocktails. He made small talk in a, in a good way, like answered questions, not just, uh, hey, how's the weather out there? Uh, it was really engaging. And then the drink was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. So I, I almost have everyone measured against the bar of that gentleman as a bartender um, because of that one experience. Now, of course, consistency, can he do it in the crunch and all that other stuff is another question. But The question for you is, as a bartender, from your perspective, or former bartender, sorry, um, what are the top three things you think bars and or bartenders get wrong in in their day-to-day?
1: Yeah, and I think obviously the past year notwithstanding, um, I think one of the things that I see often, and this is not something that I have to experience as a straight white male who, you know, orders cocktails or whatever. But the when bartenders don't give enough credit to, you know, say my partner is there or something and they or my colleagues who are much more versed than I am in so many different things, like they'll order a a whiskey neat or something. And the bartender will either look at them because they are a woman or the the conception that. Only certain people can order certain things. Um, I, I love a white Russian or I love, I will admit it an apple teeny when done right. There's, I, you know, there are, there are certain drinks, a Cosmo, whatever you, you can pick any number of them when they're done right. They can be delicious. And I think there are bar, bartenders out there that it's so ingrained in kind of the, the mentality that like, If you order a certain thing, you you don't know what you're doing or you're not a real drinker or something, but it it shouldn't be that way. You know, I wrote the the books. I wanted people to have cocktails that they enjoy. And if and I've done, you know, cocktail classes with the thing and over pandemic, if they don't can't get to the liquor store, they don't have the right kind of bitters or something, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a new drink. Um, you're not messing anything up. You're just having a slightly different iteration. Or if you have been busy for a very long day and all you want is a is a Cosmo because you like cranberry and you like some citrus and you don't want to have to think necessarily about your drink, whatever, do it. Um, I think that mentality is overlooked a lot of times, but. When you have, you know, like you mentioned, you're a bartender and there are bartenders here in Greenville that I love for this. I'll go in and order something that would not, you know, when you see this, you wouldn't be like, yeah, he's going to get an apple teeny or a uh, um, Midori sour or something like that. But there are times where I'm like, you know what? I, I saw that bottle of Midori. Why not? Let's do this. Let's see again if this works. Or I think the the bigger one that my friends like to to tease me about is when I go out ninety percent of the time, unless it's a cocktail bar, I'm getting a PBR or I'm getting a gin and soda with well gin, because uh for me, I don't wanna have to think about it at all. Like I'm out to enjoy the experience of whether it's a sports bar or like dinner with friends, dinner with my girlfriend, whoever it is. I don't want to think about everything else that comes from work. So like comes from going to a brewery and going, well, is that when do you, when do you think they added those hops or is that a dry hopping? Like, I really think maybe the mosaic hops would have been a better addition than those citra hops, you know, something like that, where as much as I would like to turn my brain off when I have a nice IPA, a stout, a, a bottle of Chianti, Classico, whatever, you name it. My mind's still going to go there because that's what I've been trained to do over the last decade is think about these things. And so being able to not be judgmental as a bartender, even if it's in your core to do that. So like if you're at a cocktail bar and some people come in and order lemon drops, um, you make the lemon drops because you're in the service industry and the hospitality industry and you're trying to give people a good time. They are out to spend their money at your establishment give them what they want and shut up.
0: Yeah. You're in the service industry. Yeah. Um, not, you know, and while I respect a fantastically made cocktail, I am I'm, I'm with you in a lot of ways where I feel like we could call it the hipster movement or, uh, maybe a hipster movement, um, meshed with a sense of Columbus syndrome. For those that don't know what that is, that's when people discover things that have already been discovered. Um,
1: I've never heard it know, that and, way, but I like that.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, look at this big piece of land that I have found. And, you know, all the his shipmates are probably like, yeah, dude, like Amerigo Vespucci found this a while ago. And I think Leif Erickson was here already. No, no, no. I definitely, I'm the one who found it. It's mine. Um, but those things combined have almost overcrafted the industry and almost made the industry uh, obviously have, has driven some celebrity uh, for, for bartenders, which I think is great. But I think there's nothing worse than when, like you said, you're out and you're looking for the moments with your significant other, your friends, family, or maybe just colleagues in general. And you have to look through this menu and really absorb all of the ingredients and try to imagine, like, is that thing going to be good or not? Um, Yada, yada, yada. And then you have to wait 15 minutes for the thing to be made. And it's like, man, I just just wanted a damn one to drop. Or, you know, can you just give me the PPR? You don't even have to open it fully capable, you know, uh, happy to open it myself. And so I think that's, you know, where do you find that balance between the art and craft of which it is really important? Because I think there's nothing sadder than an old fashioned made terribly. Um, it is just a sad, horrible, horrible drink. Um, what it's made, right? It is next level. Amazing. Um, But where do you strike that balance? Where do you find that balance in your opinion between the art and craft and the service needing to deliver an experience?
1: Yeah, I think it's about reading the room. um, Because my again, while I love craft cocktail bars, and if I had the money would, you know, be at one with frequency, um, my favorite bars are dive bars. I love the kind of unadornment of it. And When you get a good dive bar bartender who not only I mean, obviously, they're, you know, beer in a shot type of place where they just crack, give whatever, but they have to also kind of be able to read the room where there are times where I might go to the the dive bar around the corner and sit there and want to just like chat with the bartender when there's no one else there. Like ESPN's on. I've got my my beer and my shot and just chat with them about, you know, the sports or whatever's going on in town. Um, Or there are definitely other times where it's like, go in there after a really rough day or something bad happens. And it's the double whiskey. Leave me alone. I want to sit here quietly, scroll aimlessly on my phone. And for a bartender to kind of be able to read that is, uh, I think a very, a good skill. And so understanding the the people. And, and that involves just a little bit, I think, of conversation at the very beginning, like just gauging um, temperament or intent, maybe, uh, and running with it and being able to adapt on the fly.
0: Yeah, I feel like uh, bartenders need to maybe spend some time in airplanes and in Ubers to understand the, the rules of engagement. <laughs> Cause there's nothing worse than someone sitting next to an airplane and you have your, you know, your earbuds in and they're like, so where are you from? Oh, you know, yep. well,
1: yeah. But, it's uh,
0: <laughs> would like you to not engage me in conversation, please.
1: These are on for reasons, sir. Um, That's right. Although there was one time I was flying, I think I was flying home from college. So this was a while ago, but I was literally sitting next to two priests who talked the entire time I was on the edge. I had my headphones on, was reading a book or whatever, but as we were going to land, took my headphones off, started packing up, and the priest turns over to me and apologized for not talking to me the entire time. Meanwhile, it's an hour and a half flight from North Carolina to New Jersey. It's not long at all. And he's like, I'm so sorry for not including you in the conversation, sir. I, that was not my intent. I just want you to know. I'm like, Father, Padre, <laughs> sir, I, I, you're good. Thank yeah. you.
0: That's what I needed and wanted.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I had the same experience with, um, with, uh, William Shatner, believe it or not. I, uh, I shared a seat with old bill, uh, on a flight from Los Angeles back to Atlanta. And there were some, uh, folks in, in the airplane in, in line who were, you know, tittering about, Oh, it's William Shatner. Oh my God. Can you believe he's on the flight? And I, I'm like, I got stuff to do. And, I don't care although i mean i love william shatner's work i don't know that guy i mean he might be a dick yeah. in fact actually i think uh he is actually known to be a bit cantankerous anyway we sat next to each other uh there was mostly no engagement except for just cordial pleasantries uh until he he had to go you know to, to the bathroom went to the bathroom and he came back and man he was he had his hands on the uh his seat and he was bent over just staring at the seat. And at that point I removed my, my earphones. I was like, are are you okay? He's like, I am old. And I was like, Oh, okay. He's like, (laughs) my back hurts. So I'm like, I can't do anything about that. He's like, I didn't expect you'd be able to. I was like, all right. I was just a little worried. He's like, no, I appreciate it. That was pretty much the beginning and the end of our interaction. And after that, I'd seen a couple of shows that he was in. My mom loves this one where it's him and Terry Bradshaw and, uh, Uh, the Fonz. What's that guy's name? Henry Winkler. Uh, Fonzie. And thank you. Yeah. And they're like traveling around. And I realized that that may have been one of his best flights ever because I left him alone.
1: (laughs) Um. (laughs) And I think with celebrities too, like they are, they are humans. Um, You know, they, they're dealing with the same things as us. Obviously they are dealing with it in a very different way, a very different level, but they're still humans. And like people need quiet and, Especially when you have to be that kind of celebrity where he definitely can't walk through a, an airport and not be recognized and stopped, I'm sure, multiple times. Like, still need that, like, breather time.
0: Yeah, you know, he probably, every time he's in an airport, he probably gets some, uh, you know, seemingly self-proclaimed funny man saying something like, You taking an airplane or a spaceship? Yep. You know, and, and he has to act like he thinks that's funny still. I'm not saying that because I said that I did not but I could imagine someone who did. That's fine. We'll leave that there. Uh, So if if you were on a spaceship, an airplane or just on the ground, uh, if you had to drink one drink for the rest of your life, what would it be? And do you care to share the recipe?
1: Sure. This will be sort of a two parter. If I had to pick one, just kind of base thing it would be sparkling wine um i love bubbly i can drink it you know all day every day um i love my my favorite pairing my favorite comfort food pairing is champagne and fried chicken um they go so well together the bubbles sort of cut through the fat and the salt and they just it's a lovely kind of coming together of of flavor and pleasure um Based on that, though, I would say the French seventy-five is kind of my go-to cocktail. It works at brunch, it works in you know cocktail hour, whenever, and so that would be an ounce and a half of gin, a little bit of lime, uh, lemon juice rather. Uh, I would say about a half ounce, uh, a quarter ounce of simple syrups of sugar, and then you just fill it with ice cold sparkling wine. Uh, I like to sub the simple syrup for uh, Saint Germain's elderflower liqueur. Sometimes called bartender's ketchup because it makes everything better. And, you know, nice floral um, flavors. Americans
0: would say that. Americans would say it's ketchup. I, I say bartender's pesto. There you go. Yeah, uh, because you know, put pesto on anything and it fixes it.
1: Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, the the French seventy five is kind of one of my favorites. Um, another, uh, a shout out, I guess, to Cathead Distillery in, in Jackson, Mississippi. They make the honeysuckle vodka, and so swapping out the the gin or with that honeysuckle vodka gives it just beautiful floral notes and I mean bubbles and all that. So that's kind of the perfect cocktail for me.
0: That sounds lovely. I'm going to have to take it and try it this weekend. I think the misses will absolutely love that as well. Um, all right, so let's land this spaceship, uh, <laughs> at, go ahead and tell people where they can connect with you, find you where to buy that book. Um, And
1: we'll shore this baby up. Sure. Uh, So the book again is, are you afraid of the dark rum and other cocktails for nineties kids? You can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold online. Um, So Amazon target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, all that. Um, I would suggest checking out your local bookstore, shopping local. If they don't have it, ask them to get it. I'm sure they would love to do that or Yeah those are the places you can get it wherever. Um, you can find me online at slaughter rights. That's slaughter like murder. And then W R I T E S. And that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all the same. Um, just look for the, the hair and the beard and pictures of either food or drink, or usually my dog on Instagram. It's kind of a a third, third and third right there. And were there any other questions? I think I you can find me all over the internet. You can find the book places. I think I answered both of them.
0: Yeah, cool. No, you nailed it. Um, and and my suggestion, folks, would be to check out bookshop.org uh and see if it's available there. Bookshop.org is an affiliate of our our blog Grits and Grids. or um, actually we're affiliate of theirs. Uh, and Bookshop actually donates money and supports local independently owned bookstores. And so while we all love the Amazon and Amazon has made our life so much more wonderful, um, that may or may not be a fascistic statement. Um, not fascistic, uh, facetious, not, I'm not a fascist.
1: (laughs) All right. All right.
0: Yeah. Wow. This is, this is going off the rails so quick. Um, anyway, check out bookshop.org, try to find the book there. Um, and if, if, if it is on there, we will have that as the link in the show notes. And, um, definitely when you get that book, enjoy making the cocktails and feel free to tag Sam and vigor, um, at vigor branding on Instagram. Cause we would love to see those babies in action. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for taking time out this morning to talk to us and, uh, regale us with tales of wonder, uh, tales from the fork. But in your case, I think maybe tales from
1: the swizzle stick. I was going to say something else, but it's inappropriate. Um, but yes, this will go with the swizzle stick.
0: Yeah, it could be inappropriate if you think of it a good way. Anyway guys, thanks for tuning in and until next time. Uh, keep thirsty, stay thirsty. Oh I can't say stay thirsty. Stay hungry. Keep thirsty. There, that's that's far enough away. If you love what we've served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. fortales Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021. Vigor Graphic Design, LLC. All rights reserved.